Today we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 12. We'll be talking about different ministries to the body. And one of the ways that Ken, Ken Skelton just ministered to our body was with his quick lightning fast speed uh, getting us to the right slide. So it's not as easy as it looks. Uh, we, we had to hop around a little bit. So anyway, thank you for, for that, Ken. And, uh, appreciate it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we get ready to look at the word. Father, I thank you for this day and the gift that the beauty of the sky and the clouds and the sun is to us. Thank you for the gift of life. And I ask that you would help us now as we look at your word to be um, helped, encouraged, challenged, convicted. Lord, may you bring clarity where there's confusion. And I pray that you would be with my words. Help me to speak your truth in a way that is understandable to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, if you would, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to be in verses 12 to 31. Last week, we were at the beginning of chapter 12, and we tackled the concept of spiritual gifts. And we talked about how spiritual gifts are not the same as like something you discover in a strength finder test or a personality survey. They're not a talent. The English idea of, oh, you're a gifted person, um, and now let's just spiritualize it and kind of say, well, now God has gifted you, talented you. It, it's, it's, it, it's not what Paul is talking about here. That's more of a more recent idea that we've read into this passage. Uh, so spiritual gift is... Um, it's not like a talent that's given to somebody at their conversion to Christ. A talent that one Christian has and another Christian doesn't have. And you should take a survey or a test to figure out what your talents are so then you can serve the body of Christ. That might be a helpful thing to do uh, to understand yourself better. It might be a helpful thing for an employer to do to understand where somebody's talented or gifted. Uh, so those things can be helpful. It might be helpful to take one to understand yourself or your wife better. Um, I'm an Enneagram, whatever, or Myers-Briggs, this or that. Uh, those, those things can be helpful, but again, that's not what Paul's talking about. A spiritual gift, or more precisely, a spiritual ministry, is a gift from the Holy Spirit that God leads and empowers individual Christians to fill in the family of Jesus. So in that sense, a spiritual gift, it includes the idea of an ability that the Spirit makes you able to do, um, but it's more than just an ability. In other words, like I say, you don't have to discover your God-given ability before you can serve in some role. Sometimes God actually calls Christians to minister to his body in ways that you might feel like you really don't have an ability and in those moments, God shows up and empowers you and strengthens you to serve from a place of weakness. Like, for example, somebody might come to you, a good close friend in the family of Jesus, and they might ask you for wisdom about something they're going through. And you feel like in the moment, you have nothing to say. And you take a deep breath. And you ask God for wisdom, because James says if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask of God, who gives generously to all. And suddenly, as you open your mouth, 
you may find you are gifted with something to say. The Lord in that moment gave you the gift, the ministry of wisdom, so that you can minister wisdom to your fellow brother or sister in Christ. God gave you the gift of wisdom in that moment. Another gift of the Spirit, Paul mentions in a different list, not in 1 Corinthians, but in Romans 12, he mentions the gift of mercy. The ability to be a minister of mercy to somebody, to love somebody when it's really hard. That is a gift we should all long for all the time. May the gift of mercy be something that's not just, well, that person's just a merciful person. I didn't get that gift. They're talented with mercy, but I'm not. It's not the way Paul's thinking about it. When you see Christians ministering to others in merciful ways, that is the Spirit working the gift of mercy in the church to build up and encourage the church. Or think about service. Uh, let's say that you see someone serving in a ministry of service in the body. Uh, we don't just sit and say, you go, man, you've got the talent of service. I didn't get that one. I'll just talk to people. You know, I don't, I don't serve. I, I, that's not my talent. That's not my gift. That's not my area of gifting. Yeah. See, see how these things, that, that's, that's not what Paul is talking about. Paul says, all Christians are called to serve. And when you see people serving by the power and the strength that the Spirit supplies, that is the way the Spirit is. It's a gift of the Spirit to the body, to minister to the body. Now, there are other gifts that the Spirit of the Spirit that Paul mentions that stand out a bit more than even mercy or wisdom or service. Those are things that are happening all the time, but they're big gifts, like the gift of healing. Like you pray for somebody and they actually get healed. Or the gift of tongues. Or the gift of prophecy. And the Corinthian church, they were really making a big deal about those more flashy, upfront, public gifts of the Spirit. Speaking in tongues, as we'll see in days to come, was one of their favorite gifts. In fact, they were making such a big deal about speaking in tongues that other parts of the family of Jesus who hadn't been gifted that way by the Spirit, at least not yet, were feeling shame, insignificant, like they were second-class Christians because they hadn't been gotten the second blessing. Unfortunately, there are church cultures today, even, that communicate that if you haven't spoken in tongues, you are second class. You haven't been gotten the second blessing. We'll talk about that a little bit in a, little, in a few minutes. Another way that the Corinthians were misusing the spiritual gift of tongues is that they were all talking in tongues at the same time and over each other, and it was chaos. And no one was being encouraged or edified. It was almost like they were all fighting over the money. If, if we gathered on Sundays, and it wasn't just me speaking, but like 10 of you were up here trying to fight the mic, like grab the mic, and you were saying things and nobody could understand it, and then a lost person walks in, who's never been to church before, and they've never heard about Jesus, and they see that, what, what are they going to say? Well, we learned in 1 Corinthians 14 what they were saying. 
<laughs> You're out of your minds. These people are crazy. Okay? So, this church was a mess with the way they thought about gifts. So, what Paul's going to write to them, he's trying to help them as a church to reframe and rethink the way that they think about gifting in the body of Christ. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 31 for you. Paul writes this. He says, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. See this rivalry going on between different areas of gifting? All right? My, my feet and my hands are having a fight about who's more important. Like, what, what's going on? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. It's like, that eye is so much more special to me. I'm just a silly old ear. The eye is more important. Poor old me. God hasn't gifted me that way. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact... God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? And the answer to all those questions is no, 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 no. Everybody doesn't do all this stuff. There's different gifting. Now, eagerly, Paul says, desire the greater gifts. So the main idea of this morning's message is this. The different members of Jesus' one body have equal value and are all gifted and empowered by the Spirit to serve each other. So if you have your bulletin, main ideas on the back with the main points for the day, the different members of Jesus' one body have equal value and are all gifted and empowered by the Spirit to serve each other. 
There's three steps to this passage here, three parts that we're going to work through. First, we're going to look at the whole idea that Paul sets up as the, of the body and how it functions as a picture of the church. Second, we'll talk about the members of the body as, as equal but different parts of the church. And third, we'll look at how the Spirit's gifts are the power of God at work in and through his church. Now, there's sections of this passage, I just let it read a lot of verses for you, that I am going to circle back to when we're in chapter 14 and talk about in depth. For example, what is an apostle? What is a prophet? What is a speaking in tongues? Do those occur today? There's lots of debates. Christians have fought about these things, especially for the last hundred years. I'm going to be giving you my view, okay? And lots of handouts, things like that, so you can compare views and think through that stuff. So that's going to be coming down the pipe after we talk about the love chapter. Because 1 Corinthians 14 is so important to understand 1 Corinthians 12 that I kind of want to preach through all of it big picture and then circle back around and fill in missing pieces. That's, I think, the, the, the best way that I can see to, to go through it. So, um, anyhow, uh, if you have questions in your mind at the end of today, which I'm sure you will, that's good. Uh, we'll, we'll try to come back and answer those questions. So today, I'm just going to try to give you big, big picture stuff. What is this whole idea of a body? Why does Paul call the church a body? What's, what's going on there? So that's the first point. The body is a picture of the church. Verses 12 to 14. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, hands, legs, ears, eyes, but all its parts form one body, so it is with the Messiah, with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So, what is going on here? Well, the Bible uses many different ideas and words to describe people who follow the Lord. We are called the temple of the living God. His spirit lives in us. We are called his house. We're called his family, the family of God. God is a father. We are his sons and daughters. We are called the assembly of the Messiah, the Church of Christ. The assembly, the get-together of the people of the Messiah, the King. We are called the bride of Jesus. Look about, we're going to look at that a little bit today, actually, because it's very related to the idea of a body. We're called the people of God. In the Bible, we're called the new creation. We're called a pillar and a buttress of the truth. We're called a kingdom of priests. We're called a holy nation. We're called branches, and Jesus is the vine. We could go on and on, okay? The body is just one of the metaphors of the church. In 1 Corinthians 12 and in other places in the New Testament, the church is called the body of Christ. And the head of Christ's body is Christ 
himself. He is the head of the one body, the body that is made up of many parts called members. That's the word part is member. That's where we get the language, actually, of church membership. What's that all about? Is it in the Bible? Yes, it's right here. And every church is going to have a little bit different ways of figuring out who is part of the body. Just somebody that walks in? Somebody that attends regularly? Or somebody that says, no, we're, we're, we're with you in agreeing about who Jesus is, why he came, and what it means to follow him. We're, we're Team Jesus together. We're part of this local body. All the parts of Jesus' body get their direction from their authority, the, the head. Remember back in chapter 11, verse 3, we talked a little bit about headship. Christ is the head of every man. Chapter 11, verse 3. He's the head of every man and women, woman who is a part of his body. This idea that Jesus is the head of of a body, and the body is people, men and women, who trust him. <laughs> Where does that come from? Spirit breath-filled men and women. It goes back to the very beginning pages of the Bible. Okay? To Genesis. There God created a human man, and he named him Adam. Adam. Whose name means humanity. And God breathed his breath into this Adam. Adam, whose name means mankind or humanity. And so the Bible, as it develops from this original story, views Adam to be the head, the representative of the whole human race that flows from him. And very Importantly, in the story of the Bible, Paul actually references this back in chapter 11. The first human who comes from Adam is very much equal to him and a part of him. And God did this in a very intentional way to make a point. And to start a picture that would eventually emerge into the picture of Christ in his body, the church. Eve is part of Adam's body. She is fashioned from a piece of his side, assumed to be a rib, but that's actually not in the text. It's from his side. What does that mean? Well... Because Adam says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, translator Jesus would say, well, it's probably a rib. But she's fashioned from his side, taken from his side. She is his body, and it was through Eve's body that came from Adam that every descendant from the body of Adam would come. That's why Adam names her Eve. Very symbolic. You know what Eve means? Anybody remember? Shout it out. Do you remember? What does Eve mean? Mother of life. She's the mother of the living. Life. So you have a man named human. You have a man named humanity, and a woman named life. Human life. The representatives of all of us. I believe they're real human beings created in the image of God. These are not just narrative symbols. Some Christians would go out on that limb and say these are just not real people, but they're narrative symbols. No, I believe they're real human beings. God created them specifically as representatives 
and they represent us all. So the Bible starts with a man, Adam, who represents humanity with his body, Eve, who is bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. And this first Adam is the head of the woman because she was taken from him. That is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. You have a man and his bride, his body. Now Adam and his body, his bride, taken from him, ruined the first creation with their choice to rebel against God and side with the devil, a creature in rebellion against God, a creature who has opposed everything good and right and beautiful that God created. Adam and Eve rebelled. And so in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promises in a very famous verse, I will put enmity between you and the serpent between your seed and her seed, right? The serpent will bruise the heel of this woman's seed, but he, this descendant from the woman, will crush the head of the snake. A wounded victor will arise and defeat the devil, and he will come from the body of Adam, from the body, Eve, of the man. And as the story of the Bible continues on from Genesis, we learn that this human being who would come and defeat the serpent, he would be sinless and perfect. He would be the very creator of the world himself, taking on flesh to be born of a woman and come to save us. And as a man, Jesus, our creator, would himself come to be a last Adam figure. Another Adam. And as the last Adam, Jesus would not fail where the first Adam failed. He would not listen to the devil. You think of the temptation narratives of Jesus where he's tempted in the wilderness to listen to the devil. It's very significant. He does not, just like Adam did. Jesus is faithful where Adam failed. Jesus is the faithful last man, last Adam, a new representative of a new humanity. And he, this last Adam, would die in the place of the sinful sons of Adam and Eve and rise again in the flesh to be the head of a new humanity, the first fruit from among the dead, the first one to rise from the grave. He is the head of the body, the church, the firstborn of the new creation, a people who will be resurrected like him one day. This new humanity, this new Adam, this new humanity with a head, Jesus, is the church of Jesus. And the people of the last Adam, the last Adam, are also called a body and the bride of Jesus. Paul writes a whole chapter on this in Ephesians chapter 5. Why is the wife called the body and the bride. What, what's that significance? It all goes back to Genesis. Adam's body is his bride. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Why did God set it up that way? Because it was all going to be a pointer towards Jesus, the last Adam, and his people, his bride. Just like the first Adam had a bride who was his body, so the last Adam has a bride who is called his body the church, the people of God, a new humanity rescued from sin, made alive by the Spirit. 
This is also significant, guys. All of the Bible goes back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Okay? That's why I preach Genesis 1, 2, and 3 almost every sermon. Because everything flows from there. Um, the Spirit of God breathed life into the first body of the first man. And so the Spirit is the one who breathes life into the body of Jesus, the church. He is our breath. The very personal, life-giving presence of God himself is in everyone who trusts in the Lord. The Spirit is the life breath of this last humanity, this last Adam, the, the people of God, with the head being Christ. You can see that right in verse 13. Here Paul mentions that we, this body, have been baptized with the same Spirit, so as to form one body. If you have one breath, remember, in Hebrew and in Greek, the word spirit and the word wind and breath are all the same. Related. If you have one breath, then you're one body. If you have two breaths, then you're two bodies, right? We get two pulses here, we get two breaths. Or you have one breath. The people of God, the people of Jesus, have one breath. That's the idea. We're, we have one spirit that we have received as the people of God. This is the spirit of God given to give us life, eternal life, in Christ. Everyone who trusts in Jesus is baptized, immersed in the Spirit of God. One of the things that the physical act of going through the waters of Christian baptism symbolizes is the spirit baptism of believers in Jesus. Now there are, and I mentioned this earlier, there are some charismatic brothers and sisters in Christ, followers of Jesus in the more charismatic tradition, who use three different passages in the book of Acts. We don't have time to go there today, but they use three different passages in Acts to teach that the baptism of the Spirit that Paul talks about here is always a second experience for Christians that they receive after their conversion. Sometimes right at the same time, but often after. These Christian thinkers, they believe that spirit baptism comes after somebody is converted to Christ, and even after water baptism, and that it specifically refers to speaking in tongues. In other words, they believe that if you don't speak in tongues, you have not been baptized by the Spirit. That, friends, in my opinion, seems to be the opposite of what Paul says here. Paul says that to belong to the body of Jesus means that you have the breath of Jesus in you. And then... What Paul does here is says if you tap, he taps into another image that the Bible gives of the Spirit's life-giving power. In the Bible, the Spirit of God is often symbolized and pictured as water. Water that cleanses, water that cleans, water that gives life in a desert, water that flows from the end-time temple of God and brings life, living water. That's a symbol of the Spirit of God all over the body of the Bible cleansing water. And Paul says, you've all drank the water of the Spirit. He's in you now. 
The baptism of the Spirit is not some second blessing given with tongues later on to enable Christians to live some higher version of the Christian life. That way of thinking is something that's read into the Bible. Using the book of Acts, it's read into this text. We don't have time to talk about some of those instances in the book of Acts today. We will down the road. But putting tongues up on a pedestal as a second blessing and as a higher tier of Christian living called spirit baptism. Here, this is so important. Putting tongues up on a pedestal as the second level Christianity. It does the very thing that Paul is pleading with the Corinthians not to do. It turns this whole passage on its head. This passage is all about how tongues are actually not as important as the Corinthians are making them out to be. Especially when we get into chapter 14, you'll see this. And it's saying that all of God's people have different gifts, and that's okay. And then he says, at the end of the section, earnestly desire the greater gifts. And guess what? Chapter 14 says those are not tongues. It's prophecy. And we'll talk about that too. Speaking words that people can understand so that they are built up and encouraged in the faith. So, I hope for the last few minutes you've been able to grasp a little better what does Paul mean when he says the church is the body of Christ? Okay? Think Adam. Think new humanity. We are the new man. Okay? Through Jesus. We are the bride of the new man. He's our head, we're his body. A new Adam, if he's going to be a new Adam, he's got to have a new wife, right? Well, that's the picture that the Bible has set up. We are a corporate bride of the last Adam, Jesus Christ. A new people. The second thing we'll see is the members are the parts of the church. Verses 14 to 27, again, I'll read these. Paul writes, verse 14, Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. Paul's whole point is... Don't look around you and constantly size yourself up with other Christians and their roles in the body of Christ. Feeling better for yourself or worse about yourself depending on how you feel or measure up to other Christians. Don't do that. That's what the Corinthians were doing. Verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. So, if you are a member of a local body, God has your, you there to play a part. Verse 19. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there's many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. 
Now, while our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Did you catch that? that? What a vision of a connected family. You have to know each other well enough to rejoice when somebody's rejoicing. Or to grieve when somebody is grieving. Like, when my toe gets hit, like, I know it. When you hit your thumb with a hammer, you know it. The rest of the body knows it. And it's weeping with it. Like, your thumb is weeping? Ah, what just happened to me? And you're weeping too. Okay, that's the imagery that Paul is giving here. We are a connected family. We weep and rejoice together. We want to strive for that. Never perfectly, but truly as a body. It's harder for very large churches to do this. But they try to create smaller communities within. Good pastors will try to do that. Not just have it be a Sunday morning event where you show up like a concert or a festival and you watch and you are a spectator. That's not... None of the pictures of the church that we talked about earlier have anything to do with an hour and a half event on Sunday where people show up and they listen to one guy yak for 45 minutes and then they go home and maybe remember one thing he said. That it's not the vision of the church. We've kind of created that in the West, and we've even spiced it up a bit with like a great worship experience, which means music. Not that like giving and praying and preaching and encouraging isn't worship as well. Um, but that's kind of how we shifted this. It's so different than what Paul talks about here. I hope, I hope you feel that. This is like an electric shock to the American church. A body? Uh, I might know that person who sits over there. <laughs> um, no. Paul says rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. We are a body. We are a family. We are very different. We serve a God who loves diversity. No two snowflakes the same. No two humans look exactly the same. Even identical twins, right? Usually their mom can tell a little something apart, if only slightly. I'll ask you, what's more, about, what's more beautiful to you? A single violin playing a song or the New York Philharmonic Orchestra playing along with it? God loves diversity. He has wired us to love diversity. In marriage... God shows off his love for diversity. He created man and woman diverse, different, and brought them together as one flesh. And when the different become one, while still being different, life happens. Babies happen. And when one, two become one, they become three and yet function as one family. You see how unity and diversity weaves in and out in the way that God has designed the world. 
This is the glory of our Creator on display. This points to the Trinitarian mind behind all reality. That three persons are one God, and yet the one God is three persons. Unity with diversity is everywhere we look. From the one chair made up of parts that you're sitting in, to the one God, who is three persons, not parts, in relationship. Everywhere we look, unity with diversity. And so we have a church, a body of humans, all different, connected to King Jesus, the head, the new man, the new humanity that God is making us into. And because of Jesus, we all have the same breath energizing us, filling us the same life in our lungs that we receive from Jesus. And by the power of that spirit, we are all empowered and enabled and called to minister to each other and serve each other in various ways. Just as your body serves your body, right? Like my, if I hit my thumb with a hammer, hopefully my other hand is going to minister grace to that thumb in the form of ice and a band-aid and a needle, not a drill. Because drills get messy. You know what I'm talking about, you know. <laughs> um, okay, so, so we minister grace to the body as the body. Because we have the same breath, the same spirit who energizes us as God's people. Now one of the huge problems, again, going on in Corinth were that differences in the body were dividing the body instead of building the body up. Like when you hit this thumb with a hammer, it's good that there's a different hand to help this hand. Difference is a good thing. But instead of celebrating the way that everyone was different and unique strengths and abilities and thanking God for the various gifts and roles in the body, the Corinthians were making a great to-do about the greater gifts, which, as we'll see in chapter 14 especially, they saw to be public speaking in tongues that, for the most part, nobody understood or was encouraged by, except the speaker. But as the Corinthians saw it, those tongues they spoke in were a sign that they had been given spiritual power to speak on behalf of God and divine beings. These humans were speaking out of turn, disordered, chaotic ways. And it's what leads Paul to say, yeah, sure, you can speak in tongues, but can you love people? And that's why he's going to write the whole of chapter 13. So, let me just say this. Speaking in tongues is 100% meaningless if it's disconnected from love. Meaningless as in it doesn't mean anything about how spiritual you are or not. If it's disconnected from love. As is true for many of the other gifts that may seem more flashy, like preaching or prophesying or being an apostle-like missionary. Man, this guy's so awesome. He's a missionary to Africa. Does he love people? Does he love his kids? Does he love his wife? Love is patient. Is he patient? Love is kind. Is he kind? Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. 
Love is not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrong. Love is not rude. Love is not self-seeking. Is he a loving person? Is the spirit of love at work in his life? Obviously, we all are called to grow in that. What Paul is saying is that just because, and he's going there with the Corinthians, just because somebody is an apostle or speaking in tongues does not mean that they are more spiritual. Does not mean that someone is less spiritual than them. And it isn't intended to divide the body. Differences in gifts are to strengthen the body. Now, there's one last thing related to this, then, that I want to focus on for a few minutes. The Spirit's gifts, third, are the power of the church. Just like, like, okay, yesterday, our marathon, not marathon, our 5K, I'm glad it wasn't a marathon, started off with a hill, okay? And it wasn't a big hill, but... I know Ken and I were saying, like, we're all hopped up on adrenaline, all excited. Like, this is our first race in a long time. And we start off running up a hill. And by the top of the hill, I needed breath. I, needed, I, I felt like, my gosh, I just did that. And I've got three miles ahead of me. I, I don't know if I have the power to do this. Like, breath and power are very related. Like, what is the last sign that somebody is, is a, the first sign that somebody's dead? breathing. They don't have breath in their lungs. And the spirit is the power, the breath, the life-giving, energizing presence of God himself to us. The spirit energizes, empowers the body to do the work of ministry to each other. So let's look at Paul's list of these spirit-given ministries. God has placed Verse 28, in the church, first of all, apostles, which means sent ones. Second, prophets. Third, teachers. Then he shifts and talks less about specific people and roles, but then he talks about signs or ministries of the Spirit, miracles, gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kind of tongues. Then he asks a rhetorical questions. Each question is to be answered no. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. Do all interpret those tongues? No. Now eagerly, excuse me, he said, desire the greater gifts. Now, again, in a future sermon, I'm going to go through at least a few of those, especially prophecy in tongues. We'll talk about what those are, what those mean. But for now, I just want you to notice that these are all gifts from the Spirit. And they are how the church actually functions. How it gets its power, its energy. How the body lives. The church starts with the foundation of the twelve apostles. Who are gifts of Christ to the church. And then later apostles to the Gentiles. Like the apostle Paul. And it moves to prophets who are building up the church with words of encouragement and warnings and challenges from the Lord. Then Paul moves to teachers, which most likely means pastors. 
So pastoral ministry is the Spirit's gift to the body of Christ. Then from there, Paul branches out into less specific ministry positions and unpacks various ministries that body members can have to each other, like miracles. The book of Acts in the New Testament is filled with recordings of them. And related to miracles are gifts of healing. Then Paul mentions helping people. That would be gifts of service there. And he mentions giving guidance to people, which would include the wisdom he talks about at the beginning of chapter 12. And speaking in tongues. That's at the last end of the list. It's actually at the end of all the lists. That's very important. Then Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions to the church, right? And each one says, no, everybody doesn't have every gift. But everyone is called to minister to the body of Christ. So here's a few applications as we close. First, this passage assumes that all Christians who have the Spirit will be ministering as parts of the body of Jesus. Every Christian is a minister. And if you don't really know or aren't, uh, well, oh, and I'll ask you a question then. So where, where might God be calling you to minister? If you don't really know or you aren't sure, perhaps a good prayer to start each day would be, God, where can I minister today? Where could I Pray for somebody that needs prayer. Call them that needs encouragement. How are you calling me to minister to Christ's body today? Even being here on the Lord's day, being here in this space, is a way to minister to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Like, when we sing, we are singing to God, but... Interestingly, we looked at this in Colossians, but you know, we're singing to each other with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with gratitude in our heart to God. Like, I need to hear another forgiven singer sing, another forgiven sinner singing to Jesus. That's a ministry to me. Being here today is a sign that we are not alone in our worship of the risen King. A sign that here it is normal to worship Jesus. Out there it's not. But here it is. Jesus is king. We are an embassy of the kingdom of God on earth. Assembly of the new creation. We live in this space together to show the world righteousness is normal. Right? We want to live in a way that is like a, you know, ministers to each other together when we gather. So even coming on a Sunday is a ministry. Where is God calling you to minister? And how are you being ministered to by other believers? What are ways that other Christians have been God's gift to you in your life? Through maybe a word of encouragement or a word of wisdom to you. A prayer for you that brought healing and comfort. A prophetic word of truth spoken over your life that challenged you. And God used to convict you. How can you see God at work in your life through his spirit as his spirit 
works in you through other Christians. I hope you see that the way Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 12, there is not even a category for a Christian who is connected to Jesus, but not connected to the body of Jesus. The Bible doesn't even have a category for that. The life of the body is the Christian life. We are his body, which means we're a body. As, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, I need the Christ in my brother. He's writing that later. He's in prison, writing a book about life together, longing for that. I need that. Why is he in prison? Right, Because he stood against Hitler as a pastor in Germany. Amazing man. We need the ministry of the Spirit working through others to build us up. We weren't made to be solo Christians. The aim and the goal of the Spirit in us is to make us one body, many members. And every local church on this globe is intended by God to be a little picture of this global reality of a new humanity, a new Adam that Jesus is making with his bride, right? One day when we're finally resurrected from our graves. And together with our king, we are the ones who will populate the new creation filled with the spirit of love that comes from Jesus himself. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this day. We've covered a lot of ground here. I pray that you would give clarity as we think about how to apply it to our lives. Father, I thank you for the ministry of the Spirit in our midst as he ministers to us through each other. I need the Christ, the Spirit of Christ at work in my brother. Encourage and strengthen me in my walk with the Lord. Please help us, Father, to see ways that we can prioritize relationships with each other and ministry to each other. We need your help. I need your help. Grow us, I pray, as the body of Christ. Help us, Lord, to hunger for this, to live this reality in our lives that we have just learned about. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to do the Lord's Supper. I, I mentioned this last week, but I just realized Ben's not here. We're going to do the Lord's Supper at the beginning of our meal together. Um, we are going to do it early church style, Jesus' style. We're going to break bread at the beginning of the meal to start it. We'll bless the bread, thank God for it. And then at the end of our Lord's Supper together, after we eat the meal together, um, we will do what Jesus did. After supper, he took the cup drinking. He said, this is my blood shed for you. So that's what we're going to do.